absolutely. It depends on the uh, COR of the flagstick, so the Coefficient Restitution flagstick. In U.S. Opens, I'll take it out, and uh, every other tour event, when it's uh, fiberglass, I'll leave it in and bounce that ball against the flagstick if I need to. Welcome back, podcast patrons, to another episode of Leave the Pin Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dan, and we've got another great interview episode tonight. We've got Tiffany Joe from the LPGA. Tiff is a Cali girl, grew up in San Diego, has been on tour for quite a while, and we sit down and talk everything from, again, life on tour to her love of surfing um, to wearing onesies out in public and everything else in between. Tiff's got a real interesting story. She actually had a malignant melanoma scare at one point in time, came back from that, so it's been almost three years from that, so at a... At a you know, pretty young age, she has experienced a ton and lived a pretty interesting life so far. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, and, and check out this episode with Tiff. All right, Tiff, how's everything going? You know, it couldn't be better. <laughs> Just got out of the water from a sunset surf. My uh, housemates are downstairs making dinner, and I mean, I've I've gotten out of like an hour's worth of kitchen work, so couldn't be better. <laughs> Hey, well, we are glad to help. Um, so complete off season for you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it is treat yourself season now. Yeah. I, I, I like treat yourself season a lot. <laughs> um, so aside from surfing and kind of this little surfing vacation here, what do you have planned in the off season? Like what's your off season look like? Well, so after the last tournament, I really like to take at least three weeks away from the clubs completely. And I found that's really good for injury prevention and just preventing burnout. And, you know, for me, I, I want to start missing the game before I start working again to get ready for next season. So I like to take three weeks off completely. And I used to just stay at home, but I found that having the clubs there accessible and having the golf course so accessible is it's it's too easy for me to go and, and kind of break my three-week golf fast. So what I started doing about seven or eight years ago was doing a treat Joe self trip where I would fly to like Central America or, you know, somewhere in South America. And I would just be in a place where there were no golf courses and no golf clubs. So I was almost forced to step away from the golf club. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And then maybe in a couple of weeks, um, probably after the new year, I'll, I'll start practicing a little bit again. So that seems like a very mature way at looking at life on tour. How long did that take you to kind of make that a reality like for your first few years were you the one that was grinding like on the range even in the off season yeah I think for my first couple of years as a pro even um because I spent one year on the Symmetra tour and my first couple of years I was just grinding year round and I was just so tired by the end of it and it wasn't until after my second year on the LPGA I had actually just lost my card and I was getting ready to go back to Q school and that was actually when I first did my little golf fast before I started getting ready for it. We had, I think at that point, we had about five weeks between the last regular season event and Q school. And so I took two weeks off and then practiced for the two weeks prior to Q school and ended up going to Q school and playing great. And since then, it's been something that I've done pretty much every year. Yeah, I think amateurs can can get a lot from that too, you know, because there's they, there's such burnout in the game when you're playing nonstop, and sometimes when you're not playing well, I think one of the best things to do is just walk away for a little bit, you know. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, have you ever had that happen where you, you know, have to take a break from the game for a while and then you come back and you just start striping it on the range? It's like, it's actually pretty common, I feel like. Sometimes it it just takes a little bit of time away from the game to almost forget some of your bad habits in the swing. But I mean, for me, it's just been like a really good way to keep perspective on golf. And I mean, at the end of the day, it, like we we're just chasing a golf ball around a field. We're not, we're not curing cancer or anything. So I think it's a, a good way to kind of keep a healthy perspective on things. Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it. And, and unfortunately I do experience that living in Pennsylvania. And I know a lot of our mm-hmm. fans do too. We, uh, you know, four months of the year golf basically shuts down for us. Um, yeah. And I think having seasons is a good thing. I think, you know, now that golfers all live in California or Texas or Florida, where you can practice year round, you kind of forget about the off season. And there's something to be said for, you know, having a few months where you just can't play golf. Um, and I think like, it's the same thing with when I was a kid, um, the juniors that all played multiple sports. So they would play golf for a season, but then, you know, in the off season, they would put the clubs away and play a different sport those are the only people that are still playing now. The ones that were just grinding year round, just golf, golf, golf all the time have like burnt out long ago. And I've just either quit either from injuries or just from like getting tired of playing the game. Yeah. I think nowadays, you know, one of the big problems, and I see that with my kids in youth sports is this sport specialization at yes. seven, eight, nine years old. And it's just mm-hmm. insane. You know, like what I do for a living is, 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 tied right to sport and athletics and I'm surrounded by you know top tier high school athletes year round um Mm -hmm. but even for me it becomes a grind and like having the summers off it it just it refreshes you and you're ready to go back at the end of August and the end of September which I'm assuming is is kind of like the same thing for you girls with your off season right and honestly whenever I'm doing a junior clinic out on tour and a parent will come up to me and say yeah, my, my kid just got really into golf and they're actually showing a lot of potential. What can I do to make sure that, you know, they reach the highest level they can, whether it be college or professional. And I, I always tell them, just have them play every sport that they can, every sport that they want. And your only job as a parent is to make sure they don't hate golf by the time they go to college. Your only yeah. job is to just like, you know, keep stoking that love of the game. And if that means stepping away from the clubs for a while, like that's what it is. Yeah, because then when you go out and then you play again, I mean, it's 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 like discovering it again. Like I know I'm going down to North Carolina for Thanksgiving next week. I will play uh-huh. and I will play probably a ton. And then honestly, aside from simulator golf and indoor stuff like that, my mm-hmm. season's done till March. But that first round in March, I mean, it, it's like falling in love all over again. You know, you yeah. get butterflies the night before. <laughs> Absence really does the, make the heart grow fonder. And, for and sure. it's funny because even, I mean, I probably haven't touched, touched the clubs for like a couple weeks now, but even this week I'm like, man, maybe we could like take this stick and hit that ball at that tree or something. <laughs> like I'm just trying to figure out ways to like still play because I can already kind of sense that, that itch growing again. So um, I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to continue to stoke your love, love for the game. And if that means not playing for a while, then. That means not playing for a while. Yeah, you start jonesing for it a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, you need your fix. <laughs> yeah, golf is crack, basically. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, hey, crack is white, the ball's white. It's the same, you know, very hey, similar. Same, same. <laughs> um, so you were born in PA. 
Uh-huh. How long? How long did you live? Uh, where were you outside of Philly? So um, I was in a place called Drexel Hill. Have you heard of it? Yep. Yep. Um, so my dad was actually going to school at Wharton, and so that's when I was born. So I mean, by the time he had graduated, I was probably about a year old. So I don't really remember Philadelphia at all. Gotcha. But I do find that if I tell people I'm from Philadelphia, it gives me a little bit more street cred than San oh, Diego, sure. California. You can't really yeah, see him they're... from the mean streets of San Diego and, and get away <laughs> you, with that. So it can't be too hard if you're from San Diego when it's always 72 degrees and you're right. literally two miles from the water, no matter where you are. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I got to be like, yeah, I'm from Philly. Drexel Hill. What up? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you lived there, San Diego, basically your whole life, you know, aside mm-hmm. from a year or so, uh, right. and then went on to play at UCLA, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. All, all four years, which, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays, you don't see that as much. I think most people that are into collegiate sports love seeing someone that sticks with their team all four years. And you were beyond successful there, right? Four-time All-Pac-10, um, mm-hmm. and then four-time All-American, and then NCAA Division One runner-up to as a Jara Munoz, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, a phenomenal player. Give us an idea of what it's like to play at a big-time D1 school. I mean, UCLA is, is, you know, really as big as it can get for for women's golf. Right. I think at first it was was pretty intimidating, to be honest. I felt like I was a big fish in the pond of San Diego Junior Golf, and then I got kind of thrown into this just – international team that was super talented and I think pretty much every year we were at least top ranked in the top three of the college rankings and so every week when we had to qualify for a tournament it was actually really nerve-wracking but that's one of the reasons why I chose to go to UCLA because I wanted to go to a place where I was going to be pushed Um, and you know UCLA is one of those places where you're going to be pushed athletically and academically so it was it was kind of a no-brainer, and it's a funny story. Um, I'd been talking to a couple other coaches at the time, and I think um, back then July 1st was the first day that a college coach could approach you and offer you any type of scholarship. And I was I just finished a golf tournament in Palm Springs, and Coach Kerry Forsyth came up to me and said, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to offer you a, a full scholarship. And right away, she didn't even finish her sentence. I was like, I'll take it. (laughs) Do you want to maybe talk to your parents about it? And I was like, no, it's fine. They know. I was like, I, I knew that if I got any type of offer from you, I was was like, she's probably going to give me 50% and I would have gone. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a place that had been where I wanted to be for a long time. So it was a no brainer. Was, was that kind of one of those environments where, practice and qualifying to get on the tournament team was actually more difficult than playing in the tournament itself? A lot of the time, yes, (laughs) which is pretty unreal. But I mean, I think, and what I'm realizing a lot more now too, is the more that you compete, the better you're going to get at competition. Um, It's just like anything you, you practice something more, you're going to get better at it. And so I think that environment was just such a great place to to breed that kind of competitive nature that was going to hold up on tour. And I mean, now you look at it and almost our entire lineup is out on the LPGA, which is pretty unreal. Now, did you and Jane overlap for that one year or no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did. Okay. So Jane and I were freshmen together. Um, I actually very heavily recruited Jane before she signed with UCLA. Um, I remember at the time, uh, 
coach told me she really, I think in her words, she said, we really want Jane. So don't screw this up for me. (laughs) (laughs) I took it on myself that she meant like, Oh, go and recruit that girl. And so, um, Jane tells a story a little bit more creepy than I do, but she'll tell you that I like, I like spoon fed her ice cream in the locker room of the U S girls junior and told her to come to UCLA. And she said, yes, it was more like here, have, let's like, have an ice cream together and talk about school. Like, I don't know why, why she tells a story, like all, all sexualized. Like that. It, hey, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, there, when there's more bravado there, you know what I mean? It, it piques people's interest a little bit more. She, yeah, all she's doing, that, that was like an early version of clickbait. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's all she was doing is trying to draw people in. Yep. Um, so, so here's a question I always have. And I've spoken, we've spoken to a few um, collegiate All-Americans, so, you know, top-tier players, uh, one of them being Haley, Haley Moore, who just mm-hmm. actually earned her tour card. And mm-hmm. one of the things I'm always interested in, it, because it is so cutthroat at, at that level, and like you said, you actually do have to qualify, usually weekly, for these big teams to get on mm-hmm. their tournament team, unless you're, you know, the top person or, or whatever. Right. Um, on Instagram, in the media, you always see these college teams being so close knit or at least you know at least it looks that way is it really that way in in real life or yeah. are there some pe- yeah it is okay i think so i think okay. it depends on the team too i mean our team gelled really well but i mean at the same time you also have a group of seven women so it's not it's not always going to be sunshine rainbows and unicorns but i mean for the most part like the people that you were on the team with were were your best friends and they were your family when you were away from home. So I think our team, for sure, we got along really well and we were really close. And to this day, you know, Jane's my best friend on tour and Maria Horibe is one of my best friends on tour. Like we're still very, very close. Um, But, you know, I'm sure it depends on the team. I'm not sure every team was as lucky as we were. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is at a top tier school like that at at Division One level, you're with those people I mean, so for so many hours in the day, like I, I wrestled in college, so we were together with each other, you know, from five to seven thirty running and lifting, then another three hours for practice, then another two hours for study hall and it becomes a full time job. So you you either, you either isolate yourself and don't like anybody, you know, (laughs) or, or you're forced to get along with them as, as your second family. Yeah. And, and it, in a lot of ways, it's like a family. You're going to have little arguments, but you deal with it because, you know, the bigger picture is you're you're all there together and you're kind of stuck. You didn't get to really choose your teammates or anything. But I mean, you're stuck with who you have and and that kind of that's that's your family. So, yeah. And, and like for me, I was relatively close to home. If I really was overwhelmed, I could just get in the car and drive two and a half hours. But I mean, I think about like Maria Horibe, her family's in Colombia. So what was she going to do? Like get on a flight and hop back home? No, she just stayed there and she dealt with it the best that she could. Right. And all that does is build character. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, so you started playing relatively late uh, compared mm-hmm. to most girls. I mean, you see, I mean, <laughs> hell, there's girls that turn pro at age, you know, 12 and 13 now. Um, yeah. When you, when you started playing, you're around 12 years old, right? Yep. So were you doing other sports before that? Were you kind of ultra competitive in other things? How did golf come to be in your life? So um, I played a little bit of tennis, but 
mostly I was very musical. This is going to make me sound like a very stereotypical Asian child, but <laughs> I played the violin and I played the piano. Um, I played the saxophone in elementary school. And then I also played the flute in marching band. So for me, like that was kind of my thing is I, I just played a bunch of instruments and I was like pretty good at the piano, like good enough to get into like a summer uh, music program at Indiana University when I was like eight or nine years old. But I went to this um, summer program and there were kids, you had to like send in an audition tape and all these things. And there were kids from all over the world. And I just remember there were kids that were so talented. There was one kid from Russia that had um, memorized every one of Bach's inventions, which is like a book of like 50 songs. And you could just be like number 32 and he would just play it by heart. And there was another kid from Kentucky that lived in this podunk town and taught himself jazz improvisational piano. So you could tell him like, hey, like improvise off of the tune from Happy Birthday. And he would just like start improvising. It was just unbelievable. And I just remember walking away thinking like, this is not where my future is. I'm, I'm not going to be a world-class musician. I just don't have the talent. Um, but uh, not long after that, my dad used to teach at San Diego State University. So he discovered this small junior golf program. Now it's called the first tee back then it was called pro kids golf Academy. And it was a free junior golf program. And it was really close to the San Diego state university campus. So in the summers he was like, this is great. I'll just drop Tiff off. Won't have to pay for a babysitter. And I could pick her up five or six hours later. And that's pretty much how I started. He would just drop me off at this junior golf program. And, and that's kind of how I really found out. I loved playing golf. <laughs> You see anything that translates between playing music at a high level and golf, like like in your game specifically? Yeah, I think um, I think this kind of translates across the board for anything that you kind of have to refine a skill for, like any sport or any musical instrument. I think what piano was really good for teaching me was like the just the process of practice. Um, I remember you know, in a song, there's like measures. So there might be like, you know, 10 measures per line. So there might be, I don't know, like 300, 400 measures in like a specific piece of music. But I remember my piano teacher would give me this drill where I would have five quarters on one side of the piano and I would play the first measure and I would move a quarter over. So I would have to play it five times in a row perfectly. And then I would play the first and second measure and I would pretty much go until and she had stole this drill from yo-yo ma another really great asian but <laughs> um until you played the entire song through perfectly five times in a row and i think that's you know you think of any putting drill that a tour player is doing now and that's kind of what you're teaching yourself how am i gonna be under pressure like how am i gonna feel when it's time for to move that fifth quarter over and i've already invested all this time and energy in getting those four first four quarters over. And I think that was the biggest thing that helped me get good at golf really quickly. Because I think when I started at 12, I was already, you know, five or six years behind a lot of the girls that had started. But I think right away, I knew like the science of practice. And, and that helped me be really, really focused and just purposeful in the way I went about practicing. Yeah, that's, it, that's a great analogy. I mean, it obviously completely lends itself to putting. It's like that whole concept of synchronicity, you know, how everything kind of falls into place. But it falls into place because you have been doing it so many times over and over and over. Right. That's pretty and cool. I, 
and another thing is like I feel like whether you're playing golf or you know surfing or playing a musical instrument you put in all these this like really tedious time into kind of refining your craft and make it better but then you do it so that when you go out whether it's in a tournament or you go and you perform in a recital like you do that so that then you can just kind of forget about everything and completely be in the moment and just like actually kind of put more of your heart into it without thinking about all the technical stuff. But in order to get there, you have to put in that work in the first place. Right. And I think that's another thing that kind of translates across both, both things. Right. So when you're out there, you, you literally can just let go and be an athlete. Yeah. You're not there thinking like, all right, well, I was doing this with my grip and I wanted my elbow here and I wanted to like do a full shoulder turn. Like, no, at that point it's like, it's too late. Like you just play with what you've got. And I can't tell you how many times I went into a recital and I was like, it's too late. I'm just going to play with what I got. And if I mess <laughs> up a couple of times, I mess up a couple of times. And it's a lot like that same kind of term- tournament um, mindset. It's like, you just, you just play with what you got. Like morning of on the range, you're not going to fix anything. It's, it's too late by then. <laughs> Yeah, I think okay. So so I I play golf with like a ton of different people from from literally complete hacks to tour literally tour players. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that that people that are good at golf will tell you is okay. Let's say you normally have a flattish swing and you're drawing the ball. Well, this morning you get up to the range or your first tee shot goes dead right. You know, all of a sudden you've got this this power fade which came out of nowhere. Like literally, you need to play that. And you need to be able to adjust. When you're out there, I think so many amateurs get in the mindset of, oh, uh, give me two, three holes and I'll work on my swing and I'll fix it. And then by right. that point, they're like 12 of a par. They're, they're disgruntled. They hate what they're doing. Right. But it's like, look, just go out and try to rehearse everything you've done. Don't change yeah. anything and mm-hmm. just play with it. Yeah. Dance with who brought you. <laughs> like, Damn right. That's what I always say. So, so that's super interesting because, you know, I've heard some pros mention that, but kind of not go as as in depth with it. So let me ask you this. Does that make, when you go to a major championship, right? One of the five majors out on tour, is there more pressure on you to perform? Or are you just looking at that as yet another tournament because I put in all my practice, it's just another week on the schedule, and let me go and, and play it like I would any other tournament? Yeah, I just look at it as another tournament. And I think part of it is, I mean, I look at someone who's an Olympic athlete and they get a very limited number of chances to perform at that level. But I mean, we have five majors and then we have five majors every year, right? So I think for me, it's a little bit easier to be like, all right, this is just another tournament. Do the best that you can. And I mean, and in reality, it really is just another tournament. The course might be set up a little harder. It might be a little longer. There might be a little bit more on the line. But at the end of the day, it's still the same game. You're still chasing a golf ball around a big field. And, you know, you still do the same thing. You just hit your ball, go find it, and hit it again. If you had to pick one major as your first victory, which one Which one would it be? Which one means the most to you out there? Can you do that? Um, I would probably – I'd probably pl- – say the US Open. I think that's just a, like, I love the concept of it, how open it is, how like anyone can qualify for it. And I mean, if I could change it a little bit, it would be the US Open and Tory Pines hosting it. That would be <laughs> like top, top of the top of the tier right there. 
that would put you in Tiger Company, and that would be like complete home field advantage as well. Yes. <laughs> um. So, let me ask you this then. So during this summer, right, you had a nice little run um, in the month of July where you mm-hmm. went uh, two top five finishes back to back, right? Mm-hmm. Besides making more putts and and probably better ball striking stats, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that you notice within yourself that's different during that week when you're playing great? Like, is your confidence higher? Um, is it because, you know, you're sleeping better or you're at a more comfortable area? Anything that sticks out yeah, when you go on I'm, a run like that? I'm not really sure. And honestly, even when I was on the run, I, I didn't really even notice I was on one. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I can't really put my finger on exactly what it was. And if I could, I, I probably would have continued that run for a while. Yeah, everyone would just keep duplicating it, right? But yeah, I think those things are just, it's kind of weird. They just kind of sneak up on you. And in retrospect, you look back and um, yeah, I think for me, I spent very little time on the range. And I think that was, for me, the story of this year was um, I switched swing coaches last off season. And I think I started to get into this really technical mindset where I was thinking a lot about my golf swing and and on film it looked a lot better but it was really hard for me to like take it to the golf course and perform with it and I think those two weeks it was just kind of like I'm gonna just like play this fade that I have and you know I'm just gonna it was just really consistent and I felt like I could swing as hard as I wanted and I wasn't gonna miss it left and I think it was like that kind of confidence in my swing that helped me just go out there and kind of freewheel it around a little bit Um, but like mentally, I didn't feel like anything was different. I just felt like it was just one of those weeks where I just committed to playing one particular ball flight and stuck with it. And it's really interesting because at Green Bay, the last hole is a pretty tight, I mean, it's the only tight hole on the golf course really. And it's a dog left, dog leg left, and it goes up a hill and there's a bunker on the left and like a hazard on the right. And you really want to play a draw into it. But I was like, I'm just going to like nick these trees on the left side of the fairway and just fade it back. Cause that's all I've been playing. And it was like, I think I ended up hitting the fairway all four days, which is more than I can say for the last few years that I've played that hole. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't really pinpoint anything um, directly. I know last year when I played the, Scottish Open and had one of my better finishes that year. Um, my punning coach Gareth kind of talked to me about the same thing about being really like reacting athletically to your target. And so he he was telling me about how they did some EKG readings on elite chess players, and the best chess players thought that they were outthinking their opponent. Um, but in reality, what was happening was they had played so many games of chess that they would take all these mental photographs of where all the pieces were. So they were just kind of like their hand was just reacting to where all the pieces were. And so he was saying golf should be kind of the same way. And he lost my attention for a little bit because let's be honest, who cares about chess? <laughs> and so he said, well, who's your favorite um, surfer? And I said, oh, Steph Gilmore, she's beautiful. And like she just does the best turns on tour. And he pulled up a Google image of her and she's kind of doing this bottom turn and she's looking up at the lip where she's going to hit. And he was like, you never see a good surfer looking down at their feet. And so he said in the same way, like when you're punting, don't, don't be so focused on like what's going on right in front of you, just like react to the target. And so we did a lot of drills where we would just like trace lines, not even hitting putts. We were just tracing lines to the hole and trying to visualize different amounts of break. 
And I ended up going out and having like one of my best putting rounds ever. And I think it's like simple little things like that at this level that really make the difference between like, you know, shooting 71, 72 and shooting 62. Yeah. And, and the thing is with golf is, is it's not a reactionary sport. You know, the ball mm-hmm. is standing there, but right. we always do things and become more athletic when things are reactionary. Like if you're standing in front of me and I throw you a ball, you're not just going to let it hit you yet. You're right. not thinking about catching the ball. You're just reacting. And so if you make golf more reactionary or at least quote unquote more athletic, I think it does in turn become easier. Yeah. And you look at, you know, even like the, the guys that practice at my club, I mean, you see the guys that are on the range and they're just looking down at their grip, looking down at their grip. You're like, Oh, he's going to have a rough day today. But then you see the guy that's kind of like, you know, waggling and moving his feet around and like really connecting to his target with his eyes. And you're like, I think, I think even if his swing looks a little off, I think he's going to have an okay day just because like, that's the biggest thing is how do you make golf more reactionary because as humans, I think that's where we're, when we're at our best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent. I mean, think about all the rounds that you've played. I mean, in a thousand, tens of thousands of rounds that you've played where you're thinking about a position before you hit the ball. Those are probably mm-hmm. never the best rounds, right? It's always the ones where you're just out there enjoying and, and letting things flow. And next thing you know, you add up scores and you're like, Oh, all right. I was six under today. Awesome. Yeah. Did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you came out of nowhere. <laughs> um, so let's, let's get a little, a little, uh, into an event that happened with you, you were actually diagnosed with malignant melanoma on your scalp. Mm-hmm. Um, that was two, almost two years ago now, correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, it should be like, I think maybe the three year anniversary should be coming up in a month or so. Yeah, right. it's actually a crazy story. So I go surfing at La Jolla Shores every morning when I'm at home. And I ran into an old friend in the parking lot and Hadn't seen her in a long time. And I said, hey, I'm driving down to Baja this weekend if you want to carpool with me and just hop in the car. And she said, uh, oh, I, I actually can't. I have to get this um, malignant melanoma. Like, I have to have surgery tomorrow. This is going to be my last surf session for about four months because I have to get this removed. And then I'm going to have to do PT and all that stuff. And at the time, and you ask anyone on tour, I had kind of developed this weird, almost like a nervous tick where I would touch this place on my scalp and like I think Marina Alex would call it like this weird comb over move that I would do I would kind of like move my hair over and um, so my friend is telling me this and everything that she's been going through and I'm stressing out for her so I'm touching that spot on my scalp and like doing my nervous tick comb over move and all of a sudden I like kept feeling this little raised spot on my scalp and I thought oh my gosh this has been here for like a year why have I never like thought about this before. And so literally the next day I made an appointment with a dermatologist. And even as a dermatologist was, you know, combing through my hair, she was like, I don't know how you found this because this is like underneath a bunch of hair. And she looked at it and she said, you know, honestly, like it does look a little sketchy, but you know, with your age, no family history, your ethnicity, um, I don't, I don't see this like coming back as, as anything really, but just to give you some peace of mind, we'll kind of take a little chunk out of it and send it out. And like maybe four days later, she called back and said, I am so sorry. I, I know I told you there was almost no chance of it coming back as anything, but like, yeah, you're going to have to like, like put a break on your schedule for a while and get this taken care of. And so 
honestly, I think back to that moment and I thought like, man, if I hadn't run into my friend, if she hadn't been going through the same thing, and if I hadn't been doing that, like, if I hadn't been stressing out for her, I probably never would have found it. And so to this day, I like think back and think there were a lot of things that just went my way. And that's why I'm just, I'm so incredibly grateful for, you know, just, you know, even being here right now, because I know someone told me that uh, scalp melanomas are often the most lethal because people just never find them. Obviously, being a surfer, being a golfer, you're in the sun nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, were you always a hat wearer on tour? Were you a visor yeah, wearer? Yeah, I, I always wore hats and um, I like wore long sleeves pretty much all the time when I was surfing. And I was talking to the dermatologist and they did say it's not necessarily the place of the most sun exposure where you're going to have a skin lesion. So people get skin lesions in their armpits. They'll get them on the bottom of their foot, underneath their fingernails. Like there's just like really no way of telling where you're going to get a skin lesion. So that's why when you go get a skin cancer screening at the dermatologist, you have to be like completely butt naked and they're looking through everything. (laughs) Every, every nook and cranny. Every nook and cranny. (laughs) And that's, and, and, you know, it's, it's awesome that you can joke about it now. Um, my dad actually just beat prostate cancer about six months ago and, and he's at the point now where he can kind of, you know, joke about it. Um, because obviously, but at the time, um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're scared to death. I mean, but you know, you can solve almost anything with humor. Um, I mean, what, what is it? What's (laughs) it? What's it? Yeah. <laughs> What's it feel like as, you know, uh, a, a tour pro, someone that makes a living off of their body um, being put in a position like that? Yeah, it's it's obviously really scary. And I mean, speaking of humor being like a great alleviator, I mean, I'm definitely at the top of the list for that. And I remember actually when the dermatologist called me and and she said, like, I know I said because of your ethnicity and all this stuff that you wouldn't get skin cancer. And she said, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I, I've never been especially good at math and, and I'm pretty decent at parking. And <laughs> there was an awkward silence. And she said, are you, you're kidding, right? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm sorry. This is like my defense mechanism. And she's like, okay. But then, um, and then at another point when she called again and she was kind of talking about the whole surgery process, usually when they, they have to cut such a big perimeter around the skin lesion that they have to do a skin graft from another part of your body and and so she said yeah we'll probably have to like take a big chunk and then maybe do like a skin graft and and I said you normally do that from like like your butt right (laughs) she was like yeah and I said so I'll literally be a butthead (laughs) yeah and I was like Oh gosh. And I was like, I don't know if I, and I was like, I'm, and will I have to get my head shaved? Because like, that looks great on like Rihanna, but I just don't think I have the bone structure. And she was like, this is literally the the weirdest cancer call I've ever had. And, and I was like, yeah, well, that's what you get. But yeah, I mean, like that was kind of for the first, I mean, yeah, at the time it was obviously really, really scary. But yeah, I think I'm in a position now where I can look back and, and joke around a little bit about it. Do you have a lot of the girls out on tour come up to you and ask you about it because they are so, you know, predisposed to that being out at a job that, you know, I mean, hell, six, eight hours a day, you're out in the sun. Oh, yeah, all the time. And and I think it's funny that like 
people think just because you've had melanoma, you know exactly what a skin lesion is. You're, like. you're the expert, like, right? They're parting their hair and asking you like, to look now. I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dermatologist. But they'll be like, hey, can you look at this mole? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just like if you're in doubt, just make an appointment. I'm not going to – don't pull down your pants. Keep your pants on. But um, – <laughs> Yeah, I just, I, but yeah, I've definitely had five or six girls come up to me and be like, oh, can, what do you think? Like, what do you think about this? And my answer is, if you're in doubt, just get it checked out, you know? Ooh, that rhymed and I didn't even mean it to, but yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, there you go. Um, so obviously already, you know, 30 minutes in or so, your personality and humor shows. And people don't know that already about you, which if they follow you, they obviously do. Um, <laughs> you know, Jane would say that you are probably the funniest woman on tour. Uh, That's who funny because makes... I think she's the funniest woman in that tour. <laughs> Aside from her, who makes you laugh out there? Um, you know, I would say Shan Shan. Um, I really love Shan Shan with like from the bottom of my heart, and I think it's her humor is different than mine, though. I think mine is like, like I try really hard to be funny, and I think it comes from probably this like deep twisted need to be liked by people but shan chan is just naturally funny she's is not she even... like more of that low-key humor yeah and like, i could see I think that 100 things yeah she just says things and does things that are hilarious but it's you know sh there's no effort behind it and actually i think jane is the same way i don't think she like tries to be funny i think she just is and and i think you ask anyone and, and they have a good shan chan story for you and and I think that's that's a good sign of someone who's just innately a funny person. Um, and yeah, like I just I just love her. She just doesn't she just doesn't give a crap about what people think. And and I think that's super endearing. Well, I mean, that's you know, as as a former you know world number one, I think you have to have that mindset. You know, yeah, because everyone's gunning for you out there. <laughs> Yeah, my actually someone I forget who it was. Maybe it was Jerry Fultz, but someone was telling me that they were on boarding a plane and Shan Chan was obviously sitting in first class, so they were walking past first class to get to their coach seat. And Shan Chan was just sitting there in two B with a big bucket of KFC chicken, just <laughs> just eating a bucket of chicken, like just by herself, like didn't care what people thought in first class. She was like, I'm sitting in first class and I'm going to enjoy this whole bucket of chicken. I was like, that right there is goals right there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because you can. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to throw, obviously not throwing shade at anyone else out there, but who do you like playing with best at on tour? Non-practice rounds, because obviously practice rounds, you play with, you know, your good friends and, and whatnot, but who do you enjoy? Like you look at the pairing sheet or, or you get the text from the LPGA and you're like, oh, hell yeah, mm -hmm. I'm with them this week. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, Jane is one of my favorite people to play with, um, not just because she's one of my best friends, but also she's really fast. She's a very quick player. And I mean, for me, like, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing with like playing partners. If they're fast, I'll enjoy playing with them. I don't even care what their personality is like. But Jane will tell you, and I think we've only paired to, been paired together probably two or three times, and I don't think either of us have shot above 68 when paired together. It's unreal. There's something about our energy that, like, we always play well when we play together. And in Arizona, which I think was the last time I got paired with her, um, that was 
the day that I got my first hole in one on tour. And I swear to you, Jane was more excited than I was. I mean, she was like high-fiving volunteers going down the <laughs> fairway. Like you would have thought that she would have holed out. And she was like, you know, she like gave me a hug and lifted me up into the air. And I was like, who just holed out right now? Like calm your face, Jane. <laughs> like it was so embarrassing, but also pr- pretty flattering and r- really lovable. <laughs> You might need to petition the people down in Daytona to uh, to get you two together more. I know. I was like, and every time the pairings come out, we're always like crossing our fingers, hoping that we get paired together. But yeah, I mean, that day, I think I shot 66 and Jane shot 67. I mean, it's just one of those things that I think we just put each other in the right frame of mind that uh, we just go out and no matter how bad we're playing at the time, we, we feel comfortable enough to kind of freewheel it around the golf course. And then she probably told you the only reason you beat her was because of the hole-in-one. Yeah, which she got more excited <laughs> about. <laughs> um, how, how big of an issue is slow play out on the LPGA? I know, uh, you know, two, three years ago, it was starting to creep up in terms of time that the rounds would take because of caddies lining everything up. And now with the new rules that has seemed to alleviate a little bit of that problem. Um, are mm-hmm. you dealing with it as much as... The PGA Tour? Um, probably. I think slow play is kind of like an across all tours kind of issue, um, except maybe Japan. I feel like every time we play in Japan, everyone seems to play really quickly. But, I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. It's, very, disre- it's very disrespectful to hold up a playing partner. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure like how it is on the PGA Tour or on the European Tour or anything. But I, I definitely notice a lot more during majors, which is totally understandable. I get it. Like, there's a lot more on the line and courses are harder and, you know, there's a, a lot more to think about. But, I mean, at the same time, it's, yeah, it's it's very annoying, especially if you're, like, a pretty impatient person <laughs> like I am. Um, and, you know, what's funny, too, is I think it's like a, there's almost a culture of, like, acceptance of slow play on tour now. Because I swear, even personally, I think I've gotten slower as a player. I think my rookie year, I was a lot faster than I am now. Um, And I think maybe it's just you come out on tour and you get, like, if you play fast, you're just going to be waiting more. And so you end up even slowing yourself down so that you don't get as aggravated with everyone else almost. And and I think that's that's true because even if you look at players that come like the european tour is um notoriously faster than we are and so is the the japanese tour and i feel like even when those players come over they're fast at first and then i think they almost learn to slow down just to stay at the same pace as everyone else so it's almost like how do you get everyone else to speed up so right so that we're not accepting this culture of slow play yeah, no, that's that's a hundred percent right because it is. It, it's a complete culture thing in the U.S. And everybody that I've talked to that is a fast player will say, "Look, I, I can I can play my normal pace, but then all I'm doing is is waiting on this person and becoming super frustrated. So I'll do all these little things to slow myself down. I'll walk yeah. slower. You know, I'll make sure mm-hmm. I hang out of the tee box for five more seconds or things like that. Right. And so they're just you know integrating themselves into this again this slow play culture and it's like this vicious cycle that you know we can't get out of yeah because I mean at the end of the day the way I look at it is 
playing really, really slow is a little selfish, right? So if you're out there and you start playing really fast, sometimes that just lets the other person take even more time. And so you'll see this all the time on tour is, is a lot of the faster players will start purposely playing slow. So at least their, their group will get on the clock or get warned or something, because then that seems to be the only way to speed up the group is to get put on the clock. Then something's on the line. They don't want to get fined. They don't want to get penalized. And so they speed up. But in terms of like, when you just get warned, um, that's not really enough to speed girls up. So a lot of the times the faster players will start playing slower. So, I mean, that's a problem there, right? I mean, if, if the faster part players start playing slower, then, then everyone gets slow. Yeah. Then, then I mean, no one's I'm fast. Not, I'm not great at math, but I think <laughs> if that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're messing with their strokes or you're messing with their money, which inevitably, you know, messing with their strokes leads to messing with their money. Nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. Right. So you are, well, sw switch gears a little bit, obviously. Uh, there's really no transition for this, but you are very active on social media. <laughs> and so I just had a few questions. Um, we've seen you parade around in onesies, right? And things like that. So this might be an odd question, but I know that you probably have some crazy DMs from people. Um, you know, I've heard stories from Jane about people that contact her and stuff. You ever get anybody in the furry community contact you online because you're wearing one of those onesies? No, but I have gotten a lot of invites on Facebook to those onesie bar crawls. Um, thankfully, nothing from the furry community. That is super <laughs> weird. But <laughs> what's funny is, um, so before I started doing the whole onesie thing, um, I used to wear these animal beanies. And what's funny about social media is if you post about something, inevitably, people just show up to tournaments with them and give them the U.S. gifts. Yes, so that's awesome. At the Canadian Open my rookie year, um, it was, I think, a hurricane had just blown through on the last day. And I was in, like, the final group. And I looked at the weather report and saw that it was going to be freezing and realized I hadn't packed any warm weather gear. So I just went down to the nearest shop and was trying to buy a beanie and the only beanies they had were these animal beanies. And so I purchased this, this owl beanie and, and I just cut off like the side little like yarn ball thingies so they wouldn't mess with my swing. And I wore that on the final day in the final group of the Canadian open. And I'll tell you what, like the next three weeks, I got so many animal beanies as gifts. And I was thinking, man, if I had realized that's how, social media work do you just post about something and you get it in your locker i would have posted about like chocolate and money <laughs> and, <jewelry laughs> or something, and surfboards or something i mean social media is just one of those things that where if you put out enough about something like i mean i can't tell you how many times people just come up to me with a bag of skittles now and i'm like oh sweet like <laughs> you post enough about skittles we will just bring skittles to a golf tournament and um yeah so that was kind of my first into the animal clothing um, world but um, for a while I was also super into like CrossFit <laughs> and there were four guys at my gym that got all, each purchased an animal onesie and they would just show up to a bar and sit at the bar wearing their onesies and I obviously thought oh that is so cool and I and I really want to be a part of that so I bought a unicorn onesie off of Amazon and 
but actually by the time I had purchased it and started wearing it, they were like over it. And so I was, <laughs> I was stuck being the weirdo wearing a unicorn onesie by herself. And I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're like with a bunch of friends and you're wearing a onesie, people think it's hilarious. People like give you high fives. I think at the Bahamas tournament, there was like a wedding going on and the bride and the groom like wanted to get a picture with me. And it was hilarious because I was with a bunch of people. But when you're wearing a unicorn onesie and you're by yourself in a Quiznos eating a sandwich, people give you funny looks. And, you know, moms start holding their kids a little bit closer and tell them not to look at the strange lady. It's like a completely different environment depending on whether you're with friends or whether you're by yourself i mean but but maybe that's a great way to get a seat at a table you know or not be bothered (laughs) you know like maybe you know like if you let's let's say you get to to tiger woods level right well you can't leave your house honestly because Mm -hmm. you know you're one of the most recognizable people on the planet maybe that's what you do you throw the onesie on And then you're like completely immune to paparazzi and and everybody wanting things from you. That's just smart. I think that's a brilliant idea. And now that I think about it, this lineup in the in the ocean out here in the surf break has been pretty crowded. Maybe I just put on a sloth onesie and paddle out there and, and see if I could get a couple waves to myself. <laughs> I, I know the extra weight and and ability to pop up on the board and move your arms would probably be hindered with having a onesie but have you ever surfed with one on before i have actually um halloween last year i actually uh put on my sloth onesie and paddled out because i one of my friends was taking photographs on the shore and i was like if i can just get one that'll be good for social media and i got out there and i swear i weighed like 800 pounds out of the water and (laughs) i came very close to drowning multiple times and there were definitely, it was kind of a bigger day as well. And there were definitely six or seven guys that paddled past me, like looking at me like, oh God, this girl doesn't know what she's doing. We might have to save her at some point today. Let's keep an eye on her. So, I mean, not the smartest thing I've ever done, but I mean, I got the shot and I was able to post it on Instagram and that's really the important thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, isn't it though? <laughs> it's all for the gram. <laughs> I would, I would love if. Maybe our listeners, your fans out there would would try to smuggle in. I mean, I guess you can't smuggle in like a 10 foot longboard, but I would love to see somebody show up at a tournament with that. Now, my mind is already running and thinking, well, okay, you know, we have LPGA media credentials. I'm sure that allows us to bring in certain items. I'm not sure we could get away with a surfboard. I would definitely like to try that, though. (laughs) I would love to see someone try to do that. I'm, I'm, you know, what I might do is literally follow you for 18 holes, just carrying one, not answer any yeah, questions. I mean, from it wouldn't people be too heavy, all. just like a nine foot nose rider, just <laughs> in the middle of nowhere too, like nowhere close to an ocean. I think that would be a great move. Oh, sure. Like Nebraska or something like that. Oklahoma. Just find a random water hazard and just start paddling. <laughs> I think that would be great. I, I might need you to to kind of run some uh, some security for me, you know, because I think I'd get kicked out pretty quickly, and those media credentials would be revoked, I think, on the spot. But you know what? It'd make a great story. It, it would. It might blow up. Podcasts are thrown <laughs> out of, you know, uh, whatever tournament. Um, Any publicity is good publicity in my book, so. Nowadays it is, isn't it, though? <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, so listen, so why, why a longboard for you? 
I think, so I haven't been surfing very long, um, probably about maybe seven, eight years. And actually the, the group that rented out the house here in Mexico, um, I met them about seven years ago on like a little surf yoga retreat. And every year they've done a little reunion trip that they've planned together. And this is the first year that I've been able to partake because I didn't qualify for CME. And so it, it's been really great seeing some of them for the first time in about seven years. Um, but yeah, for me, longboarding is like, I'm not out there trying to shred. I'm just trying to, you know, get some easy paddles and, and shortboarding is, is a lot of work. It's a lot of paddling. And yes. it's also, um, if you look at a shortboarder, it's very like aggressive. You're, you're kind of generating a lot of your own speed by pumping. Whereas a longboard, it's a lot of it is just standing there, which is totally up my alley. I would say <laughs> the sloth is my spirit animal. So longboarding is like, perfect for me um yeah and and I think for me like I play golf I get up really early you know I take Metamucil and so my crowd is really the 70 and over crew and so for me I love getting up super early in the morning and going down to La Jolla Shores with my mug of coffee and just like hanging out with the old folks down there like that's my jam right there I love I go to bed at like 8 p.m every night and like wake up at four and get my coffee and I mosey on over to the break and then just hang out with my my, I call them my grand peeps because they're like my grandpa peeps. But yeah, I, I think that's kind of more my scene and, and that's kind of what longboarding is for me. So sunrise paddle or sunset paddle for you? So I really like sunrise Dawn Patrol paddle outs. Um, I just like I'm a morning person, but I'm definitely starting to appreciate like here we've been doing sunset paddle outs every night and it's been really really nice the only thing I don't like on the west coast is if you are surfing at sunset you're looking directly into the sun when you're watching for waves to come in and also with like the water reflecting off of the or the sun reflecting off of the water it gets like really gnarly for your eyes so I'm not a huge fan of that so I think if if I had a choice I would choose dawn patrol every time okay east coast or west coast surfing for you um, probably West Coast. <laughs> I gotta say West Coast. I think the only time I've surfed on the East Coast was probably Rockaway Beach. Um, and actually one of our ladies staying here at the house is lives there in Rockaway Beach. So I actually paddled out with her and, and I actually did really like paddling out there because I feel like on the West Coast, everything on the close to the ocean is really homogenized. Everyone has like blonde hair and blue eyes. Everyone that lives along like the west coast of california is like fairly wealthy and so you get out in the water and it's it's like a lot of it's a lot of blonde haired blue eyed like rich <laughs> people basically whereas on the east coast i feel like especially in rockaway i feel like it was just a perfect cross section of the population there like people of every color like every ethnicity were out in the water and and it's funny cuz i rented a board and i was walking through the neighborhood to get to this to, to get to Rockaway Beach and and this huge black guy looked at me and he he like and I got kind of freaked out for a second and he goes girl you going surfing and I was like yeah I am <laughs> so excited like it's just such a cool culture over there which I really appreciated but in terms of wave quality and consistency I think west coast is where it's at so you don't mind being in a wetsuit year round I like it and honestly I think I actually prefer cold water um I think it's I mean it has I this has no scientific basis but to me it just feels cleaner for some reason I mean even when we're here in Mexico the water is 
so warm. I'm basically just wearing like yoga pants and a rash guard every day and paddling out and the water feels nice, but I don't mind putting on a wetsuit. And I think with how good wetsuit technology is nowadays, like you're never really cold out in the water because you, you have enough, you know, material covering you and keeping you warm. Um, it's just the process of getting in and out. I was actually suggesting to a friend that she should start like a wetsuit yoga DVD because I feel like I burn like 200 calories every time I put on or take off my wetsuit. Yeah. And that's with like today's wetsuits. Now I, I grew up on Long Island, did a little surfing when I was in high school and stuff. And then I went to school in Pennsylvania, been there ever since. So it kind of hung that up. Um, mm-hmm. And now we have a place down North Carolina, um, right on the North South Carolina border. So I'm getting the boys into bodyboarding and stuff and hopefully in the future kind of get them interested in surfing again. And one of my biggest pet peeves is anything cold, cold weather, cold water. (laughs) So like for me, I'm a big East Coast surf fan because, you know, in the summertime, Mm -hmm. you can go out in short sleeve and and board shorts. Um, Right. Now, I was in Hawaii and California a long time ago. It was like 96 or so. But I remember jumping into the Pacific, and I was like, what the f- – you know, this is nuts. <laughs> How do people do that? And then uh, yeah. we had taken my oldest son to San Diego a few years ago, and mm-hmm. it was during Christmas time, you know, or before Christmas, a little bit before. And he was amazed at how, you know, at that point in time when we had – two feet of snow here it was 73 degrees and sunny and you know he just sprinted down to the water and got like waist high and was like ah you know just couldn't (laughs) believe how cold it was on a 70 degree day (laughs) right although correct me if i'm wrong but isn't the swell like aren't the waves better in the winter time on the east coast or no oh yeah yeah well especially like when you get the nor'easters that that rolling and stuff Right. But I was never like a head to toe wetsuit guy. Like I always had a shorty. I would never have the hood one or anything like that. Or right. Because in the my boots. mind, when I think of East Coast surfers, I think of those gnarly guys trudging through the snow in New Jersey with like icicles in their beards and just like just getting barreled and like slush basically because i i feel like i someone once told me that like that's when waves get really good is during the winter time yeah they 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 definitely get i mean heck in some places double the size you know and especially like Mm. you know before the storms are going to roll in they'll get they'll get big time but the only thing i'm going to do in cold weather nowadays is golf i'm not about (laughs) getting it's that like if it's if it's if i'm at home and it's under like 60 degrees I'm like oh no I'm not I'm not golfing today <laughs> uh, I wish I could be that picky for me it's like okay it's 40 and sunny and I can get a tee in the ground well I might not see the grass for you know three more weeks because it's going to snow on Tuesday well it's funny because my brother who's also grown up in California all his life just a couple years ago well one year ago actually moved to Chicago and so this past winter was his first winter in Chicago. And, you know, I'm going online and seeing all these memes about the polar vortex and people's toilet tanks exploding and people like freezing coffee, throwing it outside and everything. And so I'm talking to him on the phone and I'm like, oh, hey, man, it is so cold over here in San Diego. I was like, I had to chip ice off of my windshield before I went surfing this morning. And then I went to the golf course and there was like a 20 minute frost delay. (laughs) My brother was like, I haven't been outside in six days. (laughs) Please do not tell me about how cold it is in San Diego right now. 
Yeah, it gets it gets tough in the Midwest and the and the Northeast in the in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, listen, I don't want to take you, you know, keep you here too long, but I, I do got to ask you: Do you get to surf at all during tournament week, or is that something that you won't do? Oh, I'll one hundred percent go surfing. I mean, if we're yeah. playing in Hawaii or San Diego, I think actually during like kpmg when it was like closer to like the new york area was like i was trying to find like i think no maybe it was atlantic city i went surfing um on the jersey shore and stuff but like yeah like i'll i'll paddle out in hawaii i'll paddle out before tournament rounds and um it's funny because we have two uh physical therapists that travel with the tour and they had this new rule i think it's i think they're joking i'm sure they're joking but they said golf injuries only because for a while i was coming in and i'd be like I stepped on some coral and I have a cut. Can you like patch that up? Or like I got hit with my surfboard or I got stung by a stingray. <laughs> like I was coming in with all these non-golf injuries and they said, all right, if you like hurt your back swinging or teeing up a ball or something, we can help you. But like, not if you step on coral or get stung by a stingray tip, like just, just be more careful. But yeah, like during the Hawaii event, it's nice because, you know, obviously you don't have to put on a wetsuit. So I'll just get a rental car and I'll rent a board for the week and I'll just keep it in the in the car and if it looks good as I'm driving past the coast I'll just hop in for 20-30 minutes and um catch a couple waves before and after my round and actually maybe three or four years ago I was playing I was surfing before an afternoon round and I totally lost track of time and so I got back to my car and realized I didn't have time to like go home and take a shower or change or anything but luckily I still had my outfit that I'd worn the day before in my car because I'd surfed after the round the day before. So I just put on the same dirty outfit with the same coffee stain and went and started warming up and getting ready for my round. And I was paired with Brittany Lang and she looked at me and she was like, didn't you wear that yesterday? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you still have that same coffee stain. <laughs> and I was like, all right, listen, what are you the fashion police? <laughs> like, but it was kind of one of those things where, you know, you know, luckily I had that extra outfit in my car. That's fantastic. What's your what would you put your surfing handicap at? I would say like a 19, like like good enough to like be okay going out and having fun and paddling up but like not by any means good for sure. And I think it's one of those things that like it it's tough when you've like learned to golf at a higher level to kind of accept that you're going to be really mediocre at something. But it's also, I think, really good for the ego. I think it's, I think it's good to practice doing things that you suck at and still, still continue to love it. Um, I think it's just really good for your character and and really good for just kind of keeping your ego at bay. So, yeah, I'm not very good, but but I really do enjoy it. Yeah, it kind of keeps you in check, right? Because you could go out and and finish top five two weeks in a row maybe win one go you know top 10 the next week and you're on cloud nine then you get caught in a barrel and you get wrecked and you're like oh okay guess i'm not as cool as yeah. i thought man i wish i could get cut cut in a barrel and get wrecked <laughs> i'm just barrel <laughs> dodging all the time <laughs> all right let me uh let me ask you three questions before we get you out of here what are the uh what's the best part about being on tour um the friendships definitely okay when you putt you leave the pin in or no no, I can't no, do it. Like mentally, we I can't do it. Haven't had anyone say. <laughs> the only person that says yes to that is Bryson. That's. <laughs> <laughs> um, you become commissioner of the LPGA. What are two rules that you would change? Two rules. Um, I think 
like to combat slow play, I think I would get rid of the warning and just do like, like you can just randomly start timing people like target timing. That's what I would change. Um, and then I don't know. I don't know what else I would change. That would, that would be probably my, the only thing that I would change. Very cool. All right, people. So obviously you got to know Tiff a little bit better during this hour. Tiff, give, uh, give everyone information on how they can kind of follow you on social media and, and, you know, reach you. Um, so on Instagram and on Twitter, I'm at Tiff Joe, T I F F J O H. Um, and the other way would just be to just show up at a tournament with a nine foot longboard. <laughs> and any other gift that you might want to bring? Um, any type of candy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tiff, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. No problem. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. All right, people. So either get busy golfing or get busy dying. Oh, 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 oh